you know, there's more information rapid at your fingers today than there was before, but people are dumber than they used to be. You know? Why is that? How can that be? That's a, that's a, that's a dark view, Peter. <laughs> the hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Whenever a former State House reporter comes back to visit after years in retirement or exile in some other state, one of the first things they say when they enter the press gallery on the fourth floor is, Where is everybody? And don't get me wrong, there's a hearty band of 20 full-time State House reporters today who keep an eye on state government and uh, share this vital news and information with the public, but there used to be more of them, and there have been changes. And we've brought in today a venerable band of State House reporters to this takeout, uh, reporters past and present, to explore how it was, how it is now, and what's caused all these changes. Our panelists are Steve LeBlanc from the AP, who's a Boston College alumnus, worked for the Middlesex News before he was with the AP, and uh, came into state government during uh, coverage of one of the Wild campaigns. Uh, Craig Sandler, manager of the State House News Service, who started his career at that news service he now manages, also was a State House reporter for the Tab newspapers and a reporter for the Lowell Sun. Mark Lachese, a journalism professor at Emerson College for the last 12 years, who was also State House Bureau Chief for the Tab Newspapers. And Community Newspaper Company. Community Newspaper Company, and uh, an editor of Beacon Hill Newspaper back in the 90s. And Peter Lucas, the dean of the State House Press Gallery, uh, who got his start reporting up here in March of 63 with The Traveler. And he's worked for The Traveler, Herald Traveler, Globe, Phoenix, Herald American, Herald Lowell Sun, <laughs> along with some <laughs> stints in, in PR as well. Um, so let's just start with the lens through which we're going to take this long view of reporters under the Golden Dome. Uh, let's just go around quickly, uh, starting with Lucas, uh, what your first impression of the State House was when you first got up to the press gallery. Give us a little snapshot of what it was like. I was very excited to be here because back then the State House, uh, for a reporter to be si assigned to the State House was a very big deal. You didn't come in off the street. You had to work your way up, usually through general assignments and so on and so forth. To get here, you had to want to be here. And it was like the premier beat in the business. The newspapers in Boston did not have uh, Washington bureaus. So this was the, uh, the epitome of the business at that time. And to get here was very exciting and very rewarding, too, in that you're in the center of a lot of action. Hmm. Mark? Same. I completely agree with Peter. It was um, when I was a student at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. I was 20 years old, and I came to the State House to cover a story. And uh, after I'd finished covering the story, I wandered around the State House a little bit. And I uh, discovered the fourth floor and I discovered the press gallery. And I stood outside the door in awe. And I, <laughs> I, and I thought, wow, this is where the big dogs work. You know, maybe someday I'll be able to work here. And uh, I don't know, about 12, 13 years later, uh, there I was in a, in a desk in the press gallery. In those days, and this is going to sound really vain, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. Most of those organizations would send the, the one of the best. I mean, one of the best reporters I had. Um, I was working for a company. There's no exception. Yeah, There's no exception. I was working for a company called Community Newspaper Company, which doesn't exist anymore. It was eight dailies, ninety-five weeklies, 
And we had two reporters, and I was a bureau chief, and during the Senate race, they said to me, you can have a third reporter, you can hire anyone in the chain. And there were more than 300 reporters, and I hired Steve. <laughs> yes. Hey, Steve. And you regret it, it I regret it to this day. Yeah. 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 Were you my successor at Community? Um, I think I was your successor, yes. So all three of us have worked for what turned into the journalism-crushing monolith. And uh, and what was your first impression, Craig? Well, I had I came from a totally different route because right. wonder of wonders, I was hired at the apex of journalism in Massachusetts, and it was still it was when journalism was still thriving. I just happened my timing happened to be good enough that the news service needed a reporter for thirteen thousand three hundred dollars a year, barely enough money to buy cigarettes, <laughs> and. Um, so they had an opening, and although, of course, obviously it paid nothing, I went from the University of Massachusetts to the State House. One day I was talking to you know, student government leaders, and the next day I was talking to Mike Dukakis. It was astounding, and it gave me a stress headache the first two months of working at the news service. <laughs> Before Steve, Much I just thought of headache, something I want to add. This is another first impression I had. When I got assigned up here... Um, and there were reporters from uh, Quincy Patriot Ledger, Brockton, Lawrence Eagle Trib, Berkshire Eagle, the Herald Globe, Springfield, Worcester. Um, one of my first impressions was these people are really good reporters, and I thought I was good, but these guys are going to kick my butt every day <laughs> if I don't step up my game. That's motivating. Part of the excitement back then was it was a very competitive beat. Very competitive. Not only the Globe and the Herald going head-to-head, but you had the Hearst Record American. And the competition was severe. If you missed a story, or if the opposition had a story you didn't have, you heard about it right away from the city editor. Hmm. And uh, that appealed to me. I liked the, I loved the competition, and I miss it dearly. Steve, you got, you got up here in what year? The late 90s or early 2000s? I, yeah, 96. I think I came from... Out of school, I was an editorial assistant at the, the Herald for about 18 months, and I decided it would be good to get some hands-on experience in, in neighborhood papers. So I worked in, at the East Boston, the late great East Boston Community News, mm-hmm. South End News, Waltham, was it Trib? News Trib. News Trib. And I was working for, that was part of CNC, the community newspaper <laughs> company. Um, and during 1996, when Bill Weld challenged Kerry. For Kerry's Senate seat, um, they needed an extra CNC needed an extra body up at the State House. So my first job basically was chasing. One day I would chase Weld, the other day I would chase Kerry, then I would chase Weld. And this was obviously pre-social media and stuff. So um, it was it was a great experience. Basically, it was for you know to get that hands-on experience, seeing the, these folks in action, and you know training yourself to be able to jump in and ask questions and not be not be shy about it. Let me point out one thing. Back then, when I started in the early 60s up here, the goal was to become a political columnist. They were the big honchos in this business. When I walked in the door, I was in awe of columnists like Dave Farrell of the Herald or Bob Healy of the Globe, and you wanted to be like them. You wanted to have that job. But in order to get that job, you had to work your way up. And... uh, 
you know, had to cover everything, all kinds of stories, and work your way up. And for us, it was Peter Lucas, you know, but go on. And suddenly, <laughs> suddenly, you know, one day, if you're lucky enough, you became a columnist, and boy, that was it. Wow. So, uh, Do you remember becoming a columnist? Oh, that? sure. I, I, called in. I strived for it, yeah. The publisher called me in and said, you know, we like what you're doing, and uh, there's going to be an opening soon. We want you to be our political columnist. And that was at the Herald, and I said, boy, yeah, sure, right away. <laughs> Going back to something you said earlier, Peter, um, how, how much of the culture within the press gallery when you folks got up here was camaraderie uh, versus uh, the rivalry of trying to beat each other out for a scoop? Uh, it was both. You uh, made good friends, but it was very, very competitive. And you were expected to beat the opposition. Otherwise, what's the point? because everybody was on deadline. This is before television coverage really took over the place. And you competed against friends, but it was understood. You had to beat them, and that was your job, or they beat you and you heard about it, and you went around, the next day you tried to beat them. That's yeah. the way it was. There was um, some of the folks I covered the Statehouse with, and I haven't covered the Statehouse for 20 years, are still friends of mine. Um, and there was the camaraderie of a bunch of uh, reporters who were all far away from their editors. No one watching over us. But I also kept in my desk a big container full of quarters. Because if I had a story that nobody else had, I couldn't make my phone calls from the press gallery. Huh. Because everyone's sitting on top of everyone else on those desks. I used to wander down to the second floor, to the opposite end of the building, find a phone booth, pump quarters into it. We and then the other reporters would be, hey, where were you? Where were you? We used to use dimes. <laughs> <laughs> and a phone booth is a coin telephone, right. kids. That's where, that's where the, the saying came from, drop a dime. Sure. was one we used to. And especially in the press gallery, there's just shared. There's one... There's one kind of shared line for all the for where you pick up the phone and you could be on one line and a guy from the other paper could um, be on another line on the same phone system, and they actually still have it's kind of a more memorial phone booth out <laughs> on, the, on the fourth floor by the um, by the entrance to the Senate chamber, which doesn't have any phones in it anymore, but it's just the, the phone booth. So if you want to run in there and turn to Superman or Super Reporter, you can go in there with your cell phone. There you go. And those phones in the press gallery, you don't really hear them ring that much anymore, do you? No one really uses those. Back then, you had to get close to politicians if you were going to break stories. Sometimes you'd be criticized for being too close to political sources or to politicians. And I, could, I understood that uh, criticism. But my counter-argument was, you know, we all swim in the same stream, but we're different kinds of fishes. Mm -hmm. And that's the way I approached it. Huh. And you could, you could, what I did, um, this was back in the 90s, when we were paid barely enough to get a pack of cigarettes, and I was a smoker at the time, and we had an agreement we wouldn't smoke in the press room. So I would walk up and down the halls when I smoked. And that was a really great opportunity to run into people, run into aides, run into legislators, say, what are you working on? Hey, what's going on? Um, that you were in the building with everyone from the governor to the senators to the reps to the aides um, was a really great opportunity. You, you just couldn't have done this beat if it's you weren't in the building. It's all gone now. It's yeah. all gone now. Well, that was the new service stock and trade, of course, is that we were produced on paper. And we were a wire service, but distributed by making copies onto sheets of paper. And 
we would put the paper in the boxes in the room. And the people who were picking up the paper were the press secretaries for every agency in state government, every political group. And they would all have to come physically. Either their minions or some very important people would show up. And as you were standing there putting pieces of paper in the boxes, you would talk to them, these human beings, about what was actually going on. And that has completely disappeared. And I think probably the quality of scoops has diminished to the benefit of the politicians and the government and to the detriment of the public. Sure. Uh, Peter, when you started up here, uh, there were a lot of World War II veterans next door, right? Still, yeah, there were uh, veterans from World War II. Yeah. yeah, and you've talked to me before about how that kind of informed their personalities or, or how, they, how they got along. I mean, how, how much did... Um, how much did that inform their camaraderie and work ethic on, on the one hand, but uh, they were dealing with some post-traumatic stress on, on the other hand, right? Well, it was a different culture back then, and talking about the 60s, and there were veterans from World War II there. And uh, I remember when I first walked into the press gallery up on the fourth floor, I was uh, confronted by a hail of smoke. Everybody smoked, and everybody smoked, and you could barely breathe. And then, of course, everybody drank. Uh, there were big drinkers back then, and I'm not only talking. Yes, he's not complaining about that. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not only talking about the reporters. I'm mean, the politicians too. It was a different culture, and there was a big uh, impact from those World War II veterans on younger reporters like myself. And I suppose the same is true today of uh, veterans coming home from. Uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere. Well, you and, Bob, you and Bob Burns. Bob Burns was a Marine who worked in the news service room, and Lucas and Bob Burns would definitely talk military talk and also throw off that sort of sense of being in a brotherhood that nobody else really could belong to. And I'm not saying that in a pejorative way, but it was, it was tough and it was special. Here's what I loved about being up and working out of the State House Press Gallery for the Herald most of my life was that it gave me the opportunity not only to learn and cover Massachusetts politics, but it gave me the opportunity to go overseas. For instance, during the Vietnam War, I struggled to go over there, and the paper wouldn't send me until Senator Edward Brooke uh, was elected to the Senate. He went to, uh, wanted to go to Vietnam as a young freshman senator, and I hooked on with him, and I was able to go there, use him as a foil to get over there and to help you know, cover the war for a while, wow. and it, you know, it enabled me to go to Northern Ireland and cover the Troubles for a while, uh, Central America. It gave me the opportunity to do other things besides cover State House. Wow, I, I mean, I can't even ma imagine uh, one of us being sent over someplace like that today. Um, Steve, uh, you at this point are the longest running president of the press gallery. Yes. Um, so over the last... <laughs> over nice the way of saying what we'll do. Well, hey, you're, you're the junior member of this panel, let's point out. <laughs> um, over the last 20 years, as more and more desks have become vacant, how, how have you seen maybe the tone of that teamwork camaraderie change within, within the room? Well, obviously, a lot's been said about the internet, social media, and obviously that's yeah. changed dramatically um, the way the state house is covered. One thing I guess that's changed is because of the effect that the internet has had on local on local newspapers. A lot of the local newspapers can't afford the regional ones can't afford to have state house reporters anymore, so they re rely on wire services like the AP and state house news service. But what's lost in that is the reporters that 
in the old days, what would happen is if there's a, a if there's a um, a larger issue, then they may p- pick up AP copy, maybe Sados News copy, but they'd always have their own reporter there to cover their own delegation, whether it was mm-hmm. you know from Lowell or Lawrence or the Mer- you know Merrimack Valley or South Shore, wherever it was, and so they'd be writing for you know those stories for the for the local audience. And when they do, as they do that, sometimes they would stumble on things that maybe we wouldn't get because we're looking at a bigger picture, wider audience, and good things, bad things, you know, nefarious things. Those things probably still go on, maybe. I mean, I don't know, but you don't have that those eyes, basically. You don't have that extra set of eyes on that. So that's a concern, I think, for for people in that in those areas and for journalism in general, that you have fewer eyes on more granular local issues. And 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 when there are a bunch of reporters up there from a bunch of different newspapers, uh, what what finally happened was as Times got tough and things got cut back. I'm sure a lot of editors said, well, we have the AP. We have the news service. But Steve's right. I mean, I had all these local papers, and you not only covered your local delegation, you covered issues. If it was the Middlesex News, if it was something about Hanscom Air Force Base, you know, if it was the Marlboro Daily Paper or whatever, you were able to jump in on local issues. Also, as a local reporter, you had... Um, dozens and dozens of local editors who could alert you to stories that might not have. Uh, there was one of them, I, I can't remember, I think it was called Title Five. It had to do with septic tanks. Mm-hmm. Huh. And a bunch of editors started saying, Hey, you're a state house guy. We need a story on Title Five. It's about septic tanks. Polluting groundwater. No, and I'm like, What? Septic tanks? What do you want me to write about septic tanks? And finally, I got so much pressure, I started looking at it. New regulation, you couldn't sell your house until your septic tank was uh, approved. So we're talking tens of thousands of dollars for every homeowner. And that's just an example of a kind of story that bubbles up from your local editors and they, you know, that comes up to you. And that was one of the great values of having reporters from different news organizations around the state. Because you not only had your sources here, you also had um, your editors and reporters in the community letting you know what was going on. Well, another manifestation of that is a, is a lot like uh, the way the, the international press will work now, that something will break at the lower level, like in, in Palestine, but it'll go global because it points to a global pro- problem. If there were you know, welfare recipients being housed in a motel in Lynn, the Lynn reporter might write that and then the other reporters statewide would start checking and it would it would spread and explode into a statewide story and oftentimes it led to reforms you'd be surprised everything ends up at the state house in one form or another it's like a big city hall everything ends up here no matter what the issue is septic tanks smoking whatever it is it ends up in the legislature it's too bad we don't cover it like we used to cover it we used to run debates we used to run roll calls we used to do editorials on local issues. That's all gone yeah, now. And I'll just say, as a when's the last a, time you saw a paper run a de- uh, a roll call, how your local rep voted on an issue? Yeah. You don't see that anymore. And of course, that's partly a function of a legislature that no longer feels nearly as accountable because they're not getting reported on in such detail, and so they're less respectful of their own 
um, rules much more secretive and much more abusive of the public. In addition to the Secretary of State and the public records law, which when there were a bunch of reporters, um, they Watch found dogs. it much harder to, 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 to play games with the public records law or make or just turn down numerous requests. That's changed. Yeah. Well, I will say, well, I do want to say one thing. As the business person at the table, as, a, as an entrepreneur, the only solution is to change the business model of, you know, of local journalism. The only solution is almost certainly to take um, local papers, the Leonidum, uh, behind paywalls so that people are paying but a fee. But there's more than that, Greg. What, is ha- what, has happened, what has happened to the business is the memory is gone. The memory has been erased. Mm-hmm. There are no mentors anymore. Mm-hmm. Reporters come in and out. They're here for two weeks and they're gone. And uh, you never see them again. No one's learning the craft, the business. It takes years and years to understand everything that takes place in the state house and the state government. It takes a long time. No one's willing to do that. The papers won't do that investment anymore. And reporters are too anxious to move on to something else. So you don't, the memory is cut in half. It's gone, and uh, it's too bad. Uh, There's so much more competition for eyeballs than than when we all started out. I mean, in terms of, you know, your cell phone, social media, um, websites that pop up. So there's there's just, you're awash in information and, you know, trying to figure out what, what information is good, what's not good, is, I think it's harder and harder for people especially for young people who are grown up in this kind of, who are digital natives, essentially, how do you convince them to look at a paper or even read a paper's website when they got everyone else telling them what's going on? Yeah, we don't do pictures, do we? Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> Those are a lot of really good points. Um, but we're just a sliver of the state house. The building is full of politicians and aides and uh, I think it was Craig started to talk a little bit earlier about how we interact with them in terms of them always coming up to the newsroom in the old days and all those face-to-face interactions that have kind of gone by the wayside. But we've, we've watched as the State House has been more and more locked down. Um, some of it's to beef up security. Uh, I know, Craig, you can't walk in your favorite basement door anymore and go through the archives wing, and Steve has trouble getting in with his bicycle. And <laughs> um, But uh, some of it also bites back at the press. Uh, and Peter, you've been talking about uh, the renewed state police presence in the building. Um, and uh, within the last year, the governor's press office even started literally locking their door so you have to stand in the hallway and, and, and knock and, and wait to be recognized. Um, and all of that seems just uh, a little symbolic. But as, as daily reporters up here for, for you guys, um, where do we stand right now? We, we hear our colleagues complaining about this a lot, but how do you deal with particularly the communications staff who seem to try to obfuscate more than they try to assist and, and, and Sam, forward information. Before you never dealt with the communications staff because there was no communications staff. Huh. Politicians did not have press secretaries back then. Huh. Now even your lowly state rep has a chief of staff and a press secretary. Look at John Kerry is on my mind because he's in the news now campaigning for Joe Biden. But I can recall John Kerry as lieutenant governor he would drop by the press gallery at least once a week, sit down and shoot the breeze with reporters. Very accessible. Dukakis used to come by and do the same thing. Even Bill Weld was much more accessible. Now you can't see the governor. 
You have to go through a whole chain of command. You don't even know who you're talking to anymore. The best you can get is something on the computer through the internet, through email, from a press secretary. You don't even see state reps anymore. They have press secretaries. They have email. And so there's no personal contact anymore. It's disappeared. Why and is that? Do they have an overinflated sense of themselves? Or? Because they don't need you anymore. No, you huh? know, it's not that at all. They've what is learned it? over time what is effective for what they want to do. By definition, and they can't be faulted for this, they want the news to be one-sided. And they've learned, especially with the channels of social, social, social media, mm. all they need to do is pump out their message, and that's going to pretty much overwhelm the few credible media outlets that are left. I'm lucky. Today I rode up in the elevator with a congressman I haven't seen in a long time, had a little chat. Where else would I see him? I'd have to go to Washington or something like that. I like it when I get on the governor's elevator and I bump into the governor. <laughs> At least I can have a few words with him. Otherwise, you get lost in one of these press conferences where you can hardly ask a question. Sam, you're saying that the, press, uh, the, press, the governor's press office locks its door is appalling to me. They work for the, they work for the people. Um, and... I, I I don't remember the days before press secretaries. Only the governor and the Senate president and the speaker had press secretaries. But you talk to them almost every day, and you could wander, you could walk into their office. Um, you know, they might be on the phone or something, so you wait a minute, or you could see them in the hall, or I could be in the press gallery, pick up the phone, and they'd return my call in five or ten minutes. Um, politicians have always wanted to obfuscate and spin and get their message out with so with with a fewer number of reporters here and with the chain and and with as steve was talking about social media the internet um there are fewer watchdogs and they have lots of channels to go over through and around you yeah and i and i, I think that the cabinet secretaries all had press secretaries when i got here in 88 uh, but again, they would give you the details of public policy. They came across quite well because they would tend to be passionate advocates for their department's point of view. You might be reporting something negative about them that they would defend and they would discuss and they would, and they, they would often help. That has disappeared as they've learned and been taught that their job is to say as little as possible, as simple, as simply as possible, and never engage in... And, and almost never engage in any meaningful back and forth about the details Look, of policy. It doesn't serve their interests. Well, we had some so-called reforms in the 60s and early 70s, which have <clears throat> really been harmful to state government and to the citizens. One is, for instance, to cut the size of the Massachusetts House from 240 to 160 members. You lost 80 representatives. Now, it was a big deal back then because they wanted to make the legislature more efficient, which is an absurd goal anyway. And so they lost, the public lost 80 representatives. That means a whole segments of the, of the public, particularly in a minority community, lost representation. So they gave them staffs, they gave them offices and so on, and now you never see them because they, they're behind this facade of aides and press secretaries and so on. Well, uh, Peter, you've 
got sort of a unique perspective of our panelists here because uh, you've done some PR work or communications work yeah. for different elected officials, and you had a year with uh, Speaker Flaherty, right. uh, a few years with uh, A.G. Bellotti. Four years with Frank Bellotti, 75 to 79. And you worked for the T as well. That's right. Um, what was your approach to, to handling communications when you dealt with a reporter? I dealt with him as a fellow reporter because I always... I've been a reporter all my life, even though I was a press secretary. And I always treated reporters the way I wanted to be treated, and that's with dignity and respect. Unless, of course, they were wise guys. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing about press secretaries uh, like Peter, and even through the late 90s, um, I relied on them to explain uh, so much of what goes on here is complex. Mm -hmm. And when I needed to... Well, what is going on with Medicaid? What's going on with Mass Health? I'm New really not clear Medicaid. on this. Go ahead. Well, because <laughs> it's – or transportation policy or one of those really um, – it was the press people who, who would walk you through it. There was um, a fellow here who was a state rep from Western Massachusetts who had two degrees in accounting. So whenever there was a financial story, I would call down to his office, see if he had some free time. And then this would not be an interview. I would bring down some documents and say, can, can you explain what I'm looking at here? No. Um, I think that's been lost. Definitely. Has it? Yeah. yeah. There may be fewer resources than that in the past. I don't want to – I know we've been talking – I've been doing this a lot about sort of the changes that social media and the internet and the, the ability of a politician or anyone, a company, whatever – to just essentially go around the traditional media by putting out by putting out their own tweets, um, talk, and not having to be vetted, not having to go through the filter of the media that they had to go through 20 years ago. It's probably not all bad, you know, but the positive thing about having that filter was that you had someone, hopefully, who was doing their best to, to look at something in an objective way and try to get to the truth or try to get to the facts at least and explain that. Um, now you can have, people can just go around the media and blast out their, their messages, and there's no say in the old days. Somebody wanted to get a you know there's a campaign, and somebody's doing opposition research on their opponent, and they think they have something that they want to get out. They think they dug up something. They could either take out a TV ad, which is really expensive, or they can go to a reporter and, and try to get it into the newspaper and say, "Here, I found this out." And now they can just go on social media and sort of blurt it out without having to necessarily back it up. But in the old days, the reporter hopefully would, and most of the, and all the reporters I know, would take that and say, okay, let me look at this. And okay, maybe there's something there when you write a story. And you look, and look at it, another thing, you might say, eh, I don't know about this. There's nothing. There's no there there. And so you wouldn't write a story. There'd be a filter. A reality Steve, check, yeah. The nature of the reporter has changed. Reporters now don't approach a story the way they used to uh, They used to be trained to do with objectivity. That's what you used to strive for, objectivity, fairness. Nowadays, reporters are activists. Everyone's got an angle. You know, and you I pick... Still, you, still well, sure, the, the wire service is still, you know, but even so, you pick up a story and you don't, you don't get a straight story anymore. You get an angle. Everyone's got an angle, usually to the left. I like the approach that we used to have when I first started out. You treat every story like you're covering a church fire. You (laughs) cover the fire. It doesn't matter what religion the church represents, Catholic, Protestant, whatever. It's the fire, and that's what you cover. 
And that is gone now, or disappearing rapidly, in my opinion. And just to make one more defense of Statehouse reporters is there are still stories that, that are out there to get dug up, you know, that, you know, aren't fed to you, that aren't, you know, or, you know, that aren't the press release stories, whether you're looking through campaign finance reports or you're reading bills very, very carefully and seeing things that maybe, you know, that aren't in the press release that may be kind of interesting in there. So I think there are still reporters, not as many as we used to have in the old days, but there are still reporters who do the hard work, who do the legwork, who talk to people, who read through the bills to find out what's actually sure. in them. Um, Can I ask a question from Steve and Peter and, and Craig who are still up here? Because I'm not. What's better? What's better what? In the coverage. Better now than that? Yeah. Oh, nothing. Oof. I think it's better. I, I, I mean, as a reporter and as a, you know, person, as a citizen, you know, I, I like the idea of more eyes on state government um, just because I think that's better. But do so, you have more tools, more resources than reporters had in the Sure. Obviously. In the, old, in the old days, if I wanted to do, um, and you know this as well, if we wanted to do campaign finance, rep- if we want to look at campaign finance <laughs> reports, <laughs> we had to slip over. We had to slip over to, the, over to a building <laughs> across the street, hopefully get there, you know, hopefully the, the, whoever the politician was filed it maybe a little earlier in the afternoons, and you'd go page by page and flip through it and try to write it as much down. And now, obviously, you can do that on your computer 24 hours a day. If you can wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and say, I've got to look at the governor's, you know, OCPF reports or something. <laughs> you know, there's more information rapid at your fingers today than there was before. But people are dumber than they used to be. You know? <laughs> Why is that? How can that be? That's a, you know? that's a, dumber, that's a dark view, Peter. <laughs> but it does, it does put, you know, added pressure, I think, on reporters to look to take that information and make sense of it. Look through those reports, whether you're, whether we're doing it, you know, by hand on paper 20 years ago, or through but the or through the ago, website. 20 it, years ago, you used to get off the chair and move around. Sure. Now you just sit there with your cell phone and with the internet. And everything comes to you. You don't have to go out in the corridors anymore. You don't have to go over the Golden Dome and have a drink with a rep to get some information. That's all gone. The person, the, the personal touch has disappeared. But the goal, I think, is still there. You try to take, you get the information from all sorts of streams in all sorts of formats, and that's changed over the years. But the ultimate goal is to try to look at this information, digest it, and sort of put out stories that explain to people how their government is working the only thing as missing, best as you can. The only thing missing there is the people. <laughs> you get all these devices where you get all this information from. It's a, it's a different uh, world in a lot of ways. Well, I know. You so, don't have to like it. I know it's different. <laughs> <laughs> Back about 20 years ago, uh, the Press Association, the Broadcast Association, had uh, 30 to 40 members up here under the Golden Dome. Uh, we've got 20 now. Um, so are we in a state of crisis for political reporting in the state house, or where are we going to be in 10 years? We'll be down to 10 or 15 people? Where are we headed? I don't know. I wish I could look over my shoulder and see another me coming along mm-hmm. or someone like me. I don't see that. Right, and don't forget that the lack of statehouse reporters does mean a lack of source for press secretaries who know what journalism is about sure. for state agencies. And that does poison and degrade and warp the process of getting the information where it it ultimately belongs to the people. Yeah, Craig talked about the the problem is is the business model. I think I hope over the next ten years we'll see different business models emerge. I think one of the things you might see emerge is more nonprofit journalism. Um, people in the news business are keenly aware in all fifty states 
that there just aren't as many statehouse reporters as there used to be. I'm waiting, not that I'd want them to be competition to you, Craig or, or Steve, uh, for a nonprofit to arise mm -hmm. that has two or three reporters who can cover the state house. The, the news business is 20 years later just beginning to figure out um, how to change its business models um, in, in the digital world. Paywalls are one way, but if you look at the success of something on a national level like uh, ProPublica, um, the Salt Lake City Tribune just went uh, and became a, a nonprofit. Uh, a colleague of mine uh, and an old Phoenix reporter, Dan Kennedy, uh, actually wrote a book about a really good nonprofit um, news organization in New Haven. The Texas Tribune. Texas Tribune. I keep waiting. I haven't seen it yet. Um, and even a nonprofit and the news service and the AP and Commonwealth is not the same thing as seven really thriving regional newspapers regional. with gritty grassroots interests. And television and radio reporters who were stationed here. Right, right which we only have a couple of now. Grassroots. I think that's what you need. I mean, it's, uh, um, obviously, I'm pro-AP. I think that <laughs> AP you know, is out there doing, doing great work. But... I think you also need a local journalism. As someone who came up through neighborhood papers, local papers, I know that you know you need those local eyes on the ground. And I don't and I don't know what the business model is for that. I don't know if nonprofits can do that. I hope that there's a way that you know the local papers can figure out the model or the money or whatever they need to keep those those local um, reporters on the ground because. A, it's great for the communities, it's great for journalism in general, and it's also a feeder system for, you know... Exactly. For larger news, news organizations. Sure, and, and Mark, I mean, you teach a state government reporting class at Emerson. Yes. Um, and so as this next generation of reporters is moving through your classroom, um, the industry is contracting, and students are focused a lot of times on the national stage and national outlets. How much appetite is there among the folks you're seeing in the classroom for state-level government reporting? Uh, I've been teaching, I actually was brought to Emerson as, as an adjunct to design and create a course in, in teaching public affairs reporting, covering the state house, since it's across Boston Common from our campus. And that was a few years back, and then I got hired full-time. And Emerson is an arts and communication school. A lot of our students are interested in covering sports. A lot of our students are interested in covering entertainment or fashion. In 2016... <laughs> Um, after the election, the uh, entering journalism class the next fall was 41% increase. Uh -huh. And we haven't wow. seen it slow down yet. Wow. And I, was, I teach a course where um, I teach about covering government. You teach folks how to go through OCPF yeah. reports. And, yeah. yeah. And, and ten. Eight, five or six years ago, eight or nine years ago, I might have three students actually interested in it. The rest, because it was a convenient time and they heard I was a nice guy. <laughs> now, most of the students in the class are interested in government. Oh, that's good. And interested in covering government. Something about the last, the upheaval of the last few years in American politics, all of the press coverage of it has drawn people to become more interested um, in the in the workings of government, um, 
national government? Or, I mean, is the state-level stuff being left behind, I guess, is, is what I'm getting at with their, their personal interest? You, with college students, you don't know. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> because um, I tell them I teach state-level government because we're in Massachusetts and the capital is across Boston Common. All, pretty much all of the principles I teach them apply to covering Pennsylvania or Texas or Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been hiring for 25 years. The proportion, I suspect the proportion probably hasn't changed. You know, 15% of those reporters are interested enough in what Charlie Baker and Maura Healy are doing to really be motivated to do it. And 15% is enough. What happens when po- interest in politics spikes is that the pool is larger, and therefore you get more more talented reporters, a few of whom are interested in our level. It's never very many, but a few I, is okay. I also think that the pitch for for covering a state house, whether in Massachusetts or anywhere else, is I've never covered the, the, the White House, but I imagine you don't get to you know yell out questions. Well, maybe you do now, <laughs> but um, <laughs> your access basically is a lot better. Obviously, at a state at a state level, to you know the governor, the AG, you know once secretaries, a w- even even with what Peter said, right. the access still exists. once a week. The, the governor, the Senate president, and the Speaker of the House come out of a meeting and they stand there for ten minutes and we yell questions at them. And I don't think you get so you get that kind of more hands-on, you know, um, ability to, to cover the news. Whereas if you were coming on a, on a, a higher level, maybe you wouldn't have that more direct access. So that's one thing. And people care about it. I mean, unless they care about, the, presumably they care about the tea, they care about... Yeah, unless, yeah. of course, you were Rosen who asked uh, Speaker Pelosi if she hated the president. Yeah. <laughs> he got there a good go. coverage out yeah. of that. That's, but that's also, where we are now. I mean, obviously, the you know, Trump, the, on that level, Pelosi, they may be more national names, but, but you know, the governor, you know, the Senate president, the speaker... They deal with issues that people care about, you know, whether the, t- whether the trains run on time, literally, you know, mm-hmm. education funding, Medicare funding, ma- mass health funding, all that stuff. Um, so you get more access and you deal with issues that, you know, affect people more directly day to day maybe than the national issues, which may seem a little bit more removed. Good point. Good point. Hmm. Yeah, Peter, you said at the top of the podcast that uh, back when you were starting out in 63, one of the pinnacles of a journalist's career would be to be the political reporter at the Statehouse. Political columnist. Political columnist, rather. Yeah. Um, and you achieved that pretty early on in your career. It wasn't early on. It was a hard work. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, how, how does it feel that— Give the, my, man, give the man his my, due, my Sam. First, my, first, my first newspaper job was with the Springfield Union, even though I was from Boston. And I used to read the Boston papers all the time. And every time I'd pick up the paper, who was on page one but a Statehouse reporter? Right. That's where the action was. I said, wow, that's where I want to be. Yeah. And that's when I drove to become a, come back to Boston, get a job, and become a Statehouse reporter. Lose. But Lose. in order to become the columnist, you had to be around. You had to cover everything. You know, we used to cover MDC hearings, MDC. There is no MDC now. We'd cover, you know, board meetings. We'd cover everything. And so you learned the beat. And you covered also the political piece, Republicans, Democrats. And, you know, once you mastered the beat, sort of, then you thought about becoming the political columnist, you know. But you had to make, make your bones, as it were. Greg? Most of the problems that we're talking about in terms of the public interest being served, the life of, you know, really democracy, 
in public conversations, most of the problems that we're talking about stem from the pool of reporters up here not being large enough. And the only way to fix that problem is to change the business model of journalism. It will, it will never change. It'll stay about this size forever. We might add a high-quality nonprofit, but it'll stay this size forever until some organizations can make enough money to send people Let me up put here. it this way. If I stop doing the column tomorrow that I do, it runs in the Herald, it runs in the Lowell Sun, runs in Fitchburg Sentinel, twice a week. If I stop doing that, I don't see anybody filling the spot. I don't and see anybody behind me. I've watched me. that for 25 years, that wonderful journalists have stopped doing what they're doing, including the three journalists full-time from the three TV stations, which is where people get their news. I guess it's four, but you get my point. Yeah. One by one, they've left, and they haven't been replaced. Right. So who's going to do the column if I if I stop doing it? It's not like there's not a young Peter Lucas out there who's more no, than capable it, it of doing takes, the job. It takes time. It takes time to do no, it. No, but they're not going to get hired. But, but they need not... to get a paycheck. Yeah, you have to come to work. No. You have to cover the beat for about five years maybe. Yep. And there's nobody – I don't see anybody coming along. I mean, there is That's one other – I'm going to just spin a fantasy here. There's one other model, which is that Gatehouse decides that it wants to put the money into high-quality journalism. Don't forget, if you think about the number of uh, properties Gatehouse owns, if they wanted to put eight public policy reporters, scatter it, scatter them around For each their, region of Massachusetts? Exactly, yeah. scatter them around their newsrooms, which they can afford to do, they would, they would change the public life of the Commonwealth. Uh, MassLive.com, which is owned by the Springfield paper, yeah. uh, has, has done some very clever yeah. stuff yeah. In, yeah. In, moving, yeah. in moving their what had been a Springfield-based website to cover the entire state. And they have two full-time reporters right. at the That's state house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so Greg is right. It's going to take some changes in the business model. Um, I'm a little more – because I work with young people every day, Peter – I'm a little more optimistic that um, there are more Peter Lucases in coming who are going to have to pay their dues and learn to cover their beats. I worry a little bit there are just not as many jobs. The, you know, I started in Fitchburg. You started in Springfield. That's Stevie right. started in East Boston. Craig was touched on the head and <laughs> – by an by angel, the of the journalism department but, at UMass, by an angel, and right. started right at the state house, where we all learned our trade. Um, those places still exist. My students are still going to local papers. Mm-hmm. Good. So I'm, we I'm know happy, they're at least starting. I'm happy to hear the optimism. And we're going to leave it on that note of optimism. But uh, thanks to all of you for coming in. It's been a pleasure to have you here. And thanks to our producer Chris Van Buskirk on the board. We'll catch you next week. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.